This is a reading from Psalm chapter 98. O sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, Yahweh. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. In the spirit of church unity, I would like to read or pray this prayer. Um, This is from the Anglican Catechism. This is for the mission of the church. Would you pray with me? O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who relives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be taking a break from our study in Galatians. Uh, Since today is Harvest America Day, we're going to be coming back to the church this afternoon uh, to listen to Greg Laurie preach the gospel. We're going to be taking a break from Galatians, and, and I just want to talk to you today about the mission, what our mission is, what God's mission is, the mission. So we're going to be reading from a few passages in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and I'm just going to be kind of giving you, I guess, a little talk. And yes, I did shave my beard for all of those of you who noticed. I heard some smirking and laughing. It's okay. Just get over it. It's now out there in the air. We're good. So before I talk to you about missions, I want to ask you a question. What makes a great story? What makes a story great, epic, awesome, something that leaves an impression on you? Well, stories have five, people talk about five main elements. There may be more, maybe less. It's debated. So if you're not a literary genius, don't worry about it. I'm not either, but I did some research. And (laughs) so stories have some things in them that make them a story. The first thing is setting. Any story has to have a setting. If you don't have any place that you are, you don't have a story. You can't be in the void. So uh, a setting is where the story takes place. The second thing that every story has are characters. All stories have to have characters. If you don't have anybody in the story, it's not a story. It's about nothing, right? The third thing that every story has is a plot. If you don't have a plot, then all you have is a bunch of people sitting around in a setting doing nothing. So a plot is, you know, beginning, middle, end, things happen, there's a sequence and an order. The fourth thing that stories have is conflict. 
Now this is where you start getting into like, okay, I've never, maybe I've never really thought about it if I haven't done a lot of reading. But every, every good story has to have conflict. There has to be a problem that somebody has to stall, solve. Otherwise, all I'm giving you is like a sequence of, you know, I could be telling you, well, first uh, the captain came to the deck and then they looked at the sea and then they did this and this and this. That's just a report, that's not a story. So the story has to have conflict. There has to be something, the waves were tumultuous, right? So there has to be conflict. And finally, there has to be resolution. Like, we can't just go on and on and on in conflict, otherwise we're going to get bored and tired and we're going to say, man, this story is going nowhere. Nobody's going to be saved. This is, a, this is a mess. Let's forget about it. Everything has to have a resolution. Something has to be solved. There has to be a solution. So let's think of some examples, or I thought of some examples, of some really great stories I think are great stories. The first one is Star Wars, right? Everybody hopefully knows about Star Wars, the thing about Star Wars, there's a setting, right? The whole universe, outer space, galaxies, this thing, like different planets. There's, there's, there's a big setting here. Characters, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi, you have Darth Vader, you have Luke Skywalker, you have pretty awesome characters. There's a plot, right? Like there's an actual sequence of events that's going on. They go to the, you know, the Death Star and try to blow it up. And then there are, there's conflict, obviously there's conflict. You have good versus evil, you know, the rebellion trying to, to protect everybody from the empire, and the empire's trying to take over the whole entire galaxy. And then you have resolution, at least in the trilogy, eventually, you know, they, they resolve some things. <laughs> or think about Lord of the Rings. That's, that's one of my other favorites. Lord of the Rings is like this awesome epic narrative about the Middle Earth, the setting, Middle Earth, and these characters, Frodo and Gandalf, and, and there's a plot, they're, they're trying to go on a mission, they're trying to destroy this ring so Sauron can't take over in the entire Middle Earth, and, and then finally the resolution, you know, they destroy the ring and everybody's happy and, and things are peaceful. So what about these things, about these stories, makes them so great, makes them so epic, where you want to watch them over and over again, or read them over and over again, because I know I could read, watch Lord of the Rings over and over again. Well, they have a compelling hero on a compelling mission. Every great story has some, a hero that we can kind of like, man, I identify with that guy, or that's somebody that I look up to, or, or they're in a tough situation, and, they're, and they're, their character is really compelling, and also their mission is something that we can, like, we can be about. Like, man, that mission, if I was in that position, I want to be on that mission. I want to be Frodo. Maybe I don't want to be Frodo. Maybe I want to be Gandalf. Gandalf can use magic, right? But that's just such a compelling mission. Like, the, the world is at stake in those, in those missions. The galaxy is at stake. Middle Earth is at stake. Consider this story. There was a group of travelers in Africa. They came to a leper colony, and it was not a pretty picture. The suffering was inhumane. The disease was rampant, often affecting those trying to give care. The travelers noticed a nun in the dirt and filth, trying to create a little bit of cleanliness. She was binding the horrible, repulsive wounds of a leper, and one of the travelers looked upon that scene and remarked, "Oh." I wouldn't do that for $10,000. The nun turned her head and looked up at the traveler and said, I wouldn't either. Now that's a story, and it's not a very long story, but there are characters and setting, and there's a plot, and there's conflict and resolution, if you think about it. 
And what makes that story just as great of a story as Star Wars or Lord of the Rings is that it changes us. It gives us a new perspective. It causes us to pause and to think and to go, what is really valuable? What are my values? What should I be doing in my life? What's going on in the world? So what makes a great story is that it changes us. And what I want to talk to you today, what I want to talk about today is the Bible, obviously, and how the Bible is a great story that changes us. And a lot of times when we, when we think of, if we're not, if we haven't really been in this thing very much, you might think about the Bible as like this book of rules or laws or maybe a, a you know, a wisdom book that gives you some, some tidbits of information on how you should live your life, where you should go to college, who you should marry, yada, yada, yada. But really, if you think about it, the Bible is actually one big story. And it's a story, I submit to you, about the most compelling hero who is on the most compelling mission. And that hero is God. And his mission is what we're going to talk about today. So if you like sermon titles, the title of today's sermon would be God's Mission. What is God all about? What is he doing? What is the Bible telling us? So the first passage that I want to read from, and there are six, so you're going to be doing a lot of flipping. Hopefully, that's good. The first passage I want to read from, you, uh, read from is Genesis tw- chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And what's going on, this is what I like to call a hinge verse, and I'll explain a little bit more about what that means in a minute. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make, you, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I talked about this being a hinge verse, so I want you to imagine the whole book of Genesis, if you've read it, awesome. If you haven't, don't worry. Here's a nutshell. The whole book of Genesis can be thought of as like a two-room shed. So for guys in here, we've got a shed out back, right? Hopefully. I don't actually, but I want to shed one day, a workshop of some sort. So what you do is you've you've got your shed, and you open up the door, and the door, the front door is really nice and pretty, and everything looks great. You open up the door, and you walk in, and there's just a complete mess. Maybe this is your garage. That's my garage right now. And it's just a total mess. Things are out of place. The dog has chewed up everything. My tools are, I mean, it's just a mess. But then you come up, you go to the back, and there's another door. And this back door is like your back storage closet, right? And that door is this verse. That door opens up to this other little back space where things are starting to get a little bit more organized because maybe you haven't been back there as much. What, Abraham, what God is doing right now in this verse is he is starting something new. If you were to think of Genesis as like that two-room shed, the first 11 chapters tell this story about a God who's created this wonderful world and humans to rule over it, but then they rebel and they decide to do their own thing. And Genesis 1 through 11 just tells how over and over and over again, sin creeps in and brother kills brother and people wage war. And finally you get to the city of Babylon and it's just a total wreck. Humanity is just 
of messed up people. And God disperses them. And right after that, we get the story of Abraham. And God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Unlike this other nation that tried to make themselves great, I'm going to make you great. But the point of Abraham is that God calls him to go to, be, to, go to a new place, to, to, to start a new people, so that he can bless the whole world, all of humanity. So right here in the very beginning of the Bible, we see God makes it his mission to bless humanity. Even though they've been cursed, even though they, they wage war and they do all this evil, God is setting out to bless humanity. That is his mission. He wants to restore the goodness back into the creation that he made. So then we come over to Exodus chapter 19. Like I said, you're going to be doing a lot of flipping, so I've got a little sticky notes. It's really easy for me. I apologize for y'all that don't have sticky notes. But in Exodus chapter 19, this is the story of how Israel is called out of, of Egypt from slavery, and the fir- this is another hinge verse, so you can think of Exodus as kind of like the same deal. This is a, what I call another hinge verse, where it connects the beginning of the story to the next part. And what's gone on in Exodus is that God has rescued them, and he's brought them through the desert, and now they are just getting ready. They've camped at Mount Sinai, and they're getting ready to receive the law, to receive all these commands on how God says, now that I've freed you, this is how we're going to live together. So in 19, verse 4, Moses goes up on the mountain, and God tells him, this is what you're going to say to the house of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, so what's going on here is that God is saying, I have freed you. You are no longer in slavery. You are no longer oppressed. The bad things of the past are gone. Now, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a covenant. I'm going to give you a land. All the promises I made to Abraham are going to come true in you, Israel, if you obey me, if you live in relationship with me and love me. And I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Now, what does a priest do? A priest is, is in Israel, someone who lives in God's house. The temple was the home of God. That's where God set up his little shack and said, I'm going to live among you. You're going to have all your houses, and here's where I'm going to live. And I want people to live in my home with me. And they're going to be called priests. And when you want to come visit me, the priest is going to show you around. He's going to tell you what you can do, what you can't do, and he's going to allow us to have a meal together. So the priest acted as a mediator, someone who stood there so that God can be with his people. And, and, and in this verse, before Israel even has the covenant, he says, look, I want all of you guys to be a priestly kingdom. You're going to be a kingdom, and you're going to be the mediators between me and the rest of the world. This is how I'm going to bless humanity. Right now, they can't be with me because of all this filth and sin and just rebellion. But slowly, I'm working my mission. I'm going to make this people so that they can mediate between me and the world. And that's what Israel was supposed to do. 
they were supposed to be priests for the whole nation, or for the, all the nations. And we know how that story went, right? They, they failed. So, so God's mission in the Old Testament to bless humanity, and the mission of God's people in the Old Testament is to represent God to the nations. This is what's going on. This is really, really high-level, big-picture stuff, I know. But that's what's going on in the Old Testament. You see from the very beginning, this is what God wants to do. This is his saving rest. I mean, this, the whole world's at stake, right? So then we move on to mission in the New Testament. And what does it look like? How does it relate? What is God doing with Israel? These are all questions that I know we have. But we're going to look at some high-level stuff. So turn with me, if you would, to Mark. This is Mark chapter 10. That's Matthew. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus has gone up on the mountain with his disciples, and they were with him, James and John. Peter was there too. And he was transformed before them. You remember the mountain of transfiguration? They go up, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is just glorious, and they hear the Father's voice. You are my son. I am with you. Listen to him. And they are just bamboozled and like, what is going on? Let's build, uh, let's build some shacks. Let's stay up here. This is awesome. This is good. And Elijah and Moses are there. And this is like, this is, for Mark, this is a turning point. Because all through Mark, Jesus has been out on his ministry. He's been going out to, the, to Israel. He's been preaching. He's been doing different things, healing, representing God and his mission. But from the mountain on, Jesus changes his mission. Not, I mean, not his mission, but he changes how he goes about performing his mission. He starts talking about suffering and about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to bear your cross and to follow him. Everything changes. Not only does what, does what he say changes, but actually his movement changes because in Mark, he starts talking about now Jesus is going on to Jerusalem. No longer is he going around to all the, all to the cities, but he's now on a mission to Jerusalem. And you see this in the other gospels too. From the Mount Transfiguration on, he's heading towards the cross. And Mark says he starts talking about the cross. So what goes on in 42 is James and John, they're on the way, and they start talking about, hey, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. We're probably going to overthrow the Romans because we believe that he's the Messiah, and we're going to set up our national Israel. This is going to be great. We need positions of power. We need to be at the top, so we want to be right there. So James and John are like, hey, let's go ask Jesus if we can sit on his right and left, which means if we can have the number two and three position. And the disciples are like, guys, that's not cool. So Jesus is like, hey, what's going on? So verse 42, he says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, it's not about being high up on the ladder it's not about being powerful. If you want to know what true power is, it's in serving others. 
It's in serving others. It's, it's in loving. And this is the, this is the context of, of, of the passage here. Jesus is saying, it's not all about what you think it's about. The world has their way of making others bow down, but you are to be the bowed down ones to serve others. And Jesus says, and the proof of that is, I didn't come here to sit on a throne and put my feet in the air while people attended to me. I came here to serve the whole world by dying on a cross so that people may be saved. So Jesus right now, he's, he's explained to his disciples, my entire mission, the mission of God, the mission of Christ, is to redeem humanity by becoming a servant and by dying on a cross so that our sins can be forgiven. This is how, the, how God, from the beginning, is going to fulfill his mission of blessing humanity. And blessing doesn't just mean giving you nice things. That's not at all what blessing means for, for, for the Bible. Blessing means having shalom, having peace, having wholeness, having, having a group of people who are working together and, and loving each other and serving each other and taking care of the earth, taking care of everything that God created, doing what we were called to do from the very beginning, which is being good stewards and ruling over the world as God would have us do it. So this is the mission of Christ. Same mission, bless humanity by redeeming them from the bonds of slavery. Just like how God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, so now he's rescuing humanity from the true enemy, the true Pharaoh. So then what's our mission in the New Testament? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter, Peter is writing to people in Asia Minor, which is like modern-day Turkey. And some people debate whether or not he's writing to just Jews or Jews and Gentiles. Seems to me that he's writing to a mixed crowd. But Peter is very, he's very Jewish, and he likes to use the Old Testament a lot. So let's see if you guys can pick up on what Peter's doing without me saying it. I'm, I'm sure you can, it's, it's right there. So Peter is, he, he is writing because people are suffering for their faith, and they're, and they're getting a lot of derogatory comments, they may be being abused, things are starting to pick up as far as suffering for Christians goes, and he's trying to encourage them to stay firm in the faith, to love one another, to not fall away, and he, he says, when you come to Jesus, you're being built up like a house. Jesus is the rock, and you are like a house being built on that rock. And he says, you know, the people who don't listen to Christ, who don't obey him, that's, it's bad on them. They are destined to stumble. But he says in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, but you, talking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what does that sound like? Sounds like Exodus, chapter 19. You are a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What Peter is doing here 
is he's picking up on this hinge verse that we looked at in 19, in Exodus, where God brings uh, Israel to Mount Sinai. And he says, look, you church are now the holy nation of God. You are now the kingdom of priests. You are now supposed to be doing what Israel was supposed to be doing all along. Your mission is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. That is your mission, to tell the whole world about what God has done for you and to mediate between God and man, to, to mediate between Christ and those who don't know Christ, to be ambassadors, to show them love, to welcome them into the house and say, look around, this is what we get to live in. Look how awesome this is. It's so much better than the slum of the earth that you're walking in right now. This is a clean home where people love each other. And when someone gets hurt, we all run and we welcome them and we protect them and we help them heal. That is what our mission is. We're supposed to proclaim him. Proclaim him. So our mission of proclamation, I just want to read to you two more, two more passages to kind of think about, help us think about what this proclamation can and should look like and what it's all about. So turn with me back to Exodus chapter 15. After Israel has been freed from slavery, they cross to the other side. And what's really interesting is that when Moses is writing this, he writes the narrative part, talks about what actually happened to Israel in narrative style, like, you know, and then they crossed the river, and this happened, and this happened, and it was great. And then he records this song. This is the song that Moses and Israel sing right after Yahweh has freed them and, and destroyed Pharaoh by bringing the waves in at the Red Sea. So I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's very long for our purposes, but I just want to read to you um, a few verses from the beginning and the end. So chapter 15 this is verse 1 through 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. From 13 to 18. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of your greatness, because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. And that's how the song ends. So there's two ideas in this song that are going on. The first one is for Israel. Yahweh has saved us from Egypt, from slavery. He has triumphed over the dark powers that have held us bondage. 
That is the first idea. And the second idea is this. He will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. And those two ideas are complementary. The, the fact that God in the Old Testament triumphed over the greatest nation that existed at that time means that he is king, means that he is in charge, and he will reign, and he will be over his people, and he is a just king who redeems those who are low and oppressed and are hurting. If you come to him, and that is what Israel was supposed to proclaim, remember? If you see what I did in Egypt, now come be a priestly kingdom for me. Turn with me to our last verse. This is Matthew chapter 28. Most of you know it. It's a very, very commonly heard verse when you talk about mission or evangelism. It's the last chapter in Matthew, so if you get to Mark, just flip back a few pages. In Matthew 28, 16, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has spoken with his disciples, and he's appeared to them, and he tells them, I want you to go to a mountain in Galilee, and I'll meet you there. So in verse 16, we read, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's the end of Matthew's gospel, the gospel according to Matthew. So in the New Testament, just like in the Old Testament, we have the proclamation of what God has done by freeing Israel and bringing them in to proclaim him and his freedom and his reign. So in the New Testament, Jesus says, look, I'm in charge of everything. Now that I have died and have been raised, I am the king of the world. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is above every rule and every reign. The president is under him. All the nations are under him. He is the ruler. And in light of that, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, of all the people groups, of every tribe, every tongue, every language, every race. This is your mission, to go proclaim his reign and his love so that he can bless all humanity and bring all the nations back to him because he had to disperse them in the beginning. So in the Old Testament, freedom from slavery and Yahweh's reign And in the New Testament, we have freedom from evil and the reign of Jesus. I just want to leave you with this short idea. Will you continue to sit, will we continue to sit by, watch great movies, read great books, listen to all these fabulous stories, and leave thinking, man, I wish I was that character, I wish I could have that mission? Or will we open up our eyes, dig in, look at the story that the Bible is telling, and realize that God is inviting us 
to be a part of the greatest story ever told, to worship the greatest hero who's on the most compelling mission. Amen.